Hey guys and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So today is episode 175. So I'm very, very excited for this episode. And this episode is with someone who is doing incredible work in the industry at the minute. And it's Dr. Gary Mendoza. So Gary Mendoza's background is in kind of PT. Uh, Gary holds both British and American qualifications in PT and has been a PT for about 25 years. He represented GB at the first ever IDEA personal trainers convention in Washington, USA, uh, working while working as a PT, studying nutrition, graduating with uh, first in applied uh, human nutrition from University of Wales. He moved into training PTs. He moved into a and setting up a successful nutrition and weight management course and teaching PTs the skills to develop weight management uh, skills and programs themselves. He has also worked with a lot of sports teams and um, including Nottingham Forest. He's worked with the Welsh national football team um, under the the tutelage of uh, Mark Hughes. And he has he is now the director of Stages of Change, and they deliver behavior change workshops, and they are incredible. Some of the stuff, the resources that are on that. So if you're a PT or you want to learn a little bit more about why you do things, head over uh, to his website, which is in the link in the bio below. And he wants the industry to move to a more evidence based nutrition side of um, nutrition evidence-based style nutrition and behavior change education and wants trainers to be able to deliver effective and safe nutrition and move away from this whole ideology of meal plans and we we speak about that in the episode and the episode that we kind of talk about is we talk about the different types of motivation we talk about the time management tips for weight loss we talk about having the internal reason for change the likes of positive positive affirmations why the goal is only the outcome and it's the system that gets you to the goal we talk about the self talk that you present to yourself and it creates your reality and being careful of that we talk about kind of do you actually can you change habits or can we replace them and we talk about kind of moving away from perfectionism and kind of moving towards production it's a really really useful episode for if anyone is starting on a journey journey looking to actually familiarize themselves with the why and why they actually do things learning looking for their actual why themselves it's really really useful and i hope you guys enjoy the episode with gary mendoza Gary, thank you so much for coming on. How are we? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. No problem at all. So, Gary, for anyone who isn't aware of your work and how you got into the field, how did this whole thing come about and how did you get into the whole field? Um, Quite a convoluted route, really. (laughs) I've been a personal trainer for 28 years. I represented Great Britain at the first ever personal training convention in the the US. Um, And then working as a PT... I realized that I didn't know enough about nutrition. I was forever blagging it, making it up as I went along. So I thought maybe I should learn a bit more about it. So I went and did a degree in nutrition and I ended up way more interested in nutrition. So then I worked for a major training company in the UK, uh, wrote all their nutrition courses. And whilst I was doing that, they sponsored me to do my PhD, which is in a multidimensional model for the treatment of male obesity and a big component of that is psychology and psychometric testing and so kind of similarly after i'd done my nutrition grid when i finished my phd i became fascinated by behavior change um then i went to new zealand and lectured in sport and exercise nutrition for two years and whilst i was over there i worked with uh, the public health with the maori and south pacific islanders and developed this weight management model that had all the psychometric testing and the psychology in it But the one thing that was missing was if you were assessing clients and saying, 
or you're not ready to change yet, from an ethical standpoint, you couldn't turn them away. And so we had to come up with a solution. And that's where I learned motivational interviewing because motivational interviewing is designed to take people that are ambivalent about change and help them move forward. And so that's kind of how that came about. And so that eventually became what is now the behavior change and motivational interviewing workshop. Wow. You know, that, 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 like that's worldwide now at this stage. How do you find going from being a PT to now kind of like educating PTs on the other side of things? How do you find, how do you find that yourself? For me, it's been really interesting, but actually quite, because I, I, when I worked for the training company, I used to deliver the level three PT. And by then I had kind of 10 years experience as a PT. And so I was able to put a lot of what I actually did rather than just deliver theory which i'm theory is important but i'm not a major fan if you can't apply it yeah and and it's similar with behavior change now and even now when i'm let because i lecture at cardiff met and bar spa university but a big part for me is yes i'll deliver the theory but i'll kind of show students how they can apply it and use it and so i get real good feedback from that because i, I think sometimes academics tend to get a bit lost in theory and it's like how would i apply that they're like mm, i don't know it's just that's the theory so yes, yeah yes. i'm a big fan of let's make it applicable something you can use amazing and i think one of the things that i think a lot of people can got, kind of get bogged down in is there's one big word and one big buzzword that's kind of out there uh, out there and a lot of people kind of rely on it an awful lot is the kind of the complex animal that is motivation can oh. you kind of can you kind of go through like the different types yeah. Um, and why do you think so many people rely on kind of one of them over the other or do they go for one or the other? I think part of it is our own fault because of the way we teach trainers. We kind of tell trainers, right, you've got all the knowledge. Now all you need to do is go out, find your clients, write them a program and make sure they can do it. And so their idea of motivation is stand over the client going, oh, yeah, go on one more rep or whatever. Or if they've got a class, whoever, whoever finishes last is doing another lap or another 10 press-ups. And so that model of motivation is quite prevalent, and then, especially when you've got um, boot camps, military fitness camps, that type of thing, where they're bringing that military style of discipline, which is kind of do as I say, not do as I do. Yeah. So that type of motivation, if you look at self-determination theory from Ryan and, Ryan and Desai, that is what we would call extrinsic motivation. It's coming from someone else. Now, although it technically is motivation, it's not very effective. In fact, it's the worst form of motivation. And you can kind of look at motivation on a sliding scale. So at one end on, say, the left-hand side, you've got extrinsic motivation, the least effective. And then what happens is you move up a sliding scale until you get if ultimately to what I would call the green light type of motivation, which is intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation comes, as, as it kind of suggests, is internal. And it means you want to do it, you enjoy doing it, there's a reason for you to do it. Nobody else will have to tell you. If you've got intrinsic motivation, you will get on and you will do it. And so as a trainer, this is what you should be trying to build in your clients. And the way you do that, there's a really good model uh, called uh, the Behaviour Change Wheel. It's a really good paper. And if you Google that, Behaviour Change Wheel by 
Michi, I think it is. I've got it here, so I can always tell you. Yeah, Michi et al. It's, it's open source. But within that, it's what we call the COM-B model. And COM stands for Capability, Opportunity, Motivation. And those three things all feed into a behavior change. And so if you're trying to build motivation, which is kind of the middle one there, you have to build capability. And we build build capability in clients by educating them, getting them to go through the process, kind of modeling, um, letting them visually see how things work. And so they build that capability. And it ties in quite well with my research where I found that when people were trying to lose weight in the weight management program, their level of self-efficacy. So you can think of self-efficacy as self-confidence. They need a certain level of self-efficacy before you can even start a program. If, if you start a program with too little self-efficacy, you'll drop out. And, and we found this in the data. But what you should see if you're doing a good job as a trainer is self-efficacy slowly growing. And as self-efficacy increases, you can kind of analogy that there would be that the intrinsic motivation is most probably increasing as well because you're building that capability that understanding and so it's really important that you build this in your clients because that is what is going to sustain them and keep them in the program and so yeah as i say motivation it's all very well shouting and screaming it's not a very effective form intrinsic motivation that's what you should be looking to build with your clients do you think people rely on it too much rather than actually kind of like there's the very like kind of bro orientated like bodybuilding way of like just show up and do the work? Is there too much of like that element being pushed from trainers onto general population? Because Completely. And how would you how would you go about kind of changing that or what would be the first metric or what would be the first thing that you would kind of change with that with someone that right. was mentored by you? If if you look at all the uh, research around counselling. so And counselling is very much aimed at getting someone to make a lifestyle change. And to my mind, as a trainer or coach, and actually it doesn't matter whether you're working with Joe Blogs or Jill Blogs, the housewife, whatever, or you are working with an elite athlete. And I work with elite athletes in, in nutrition all the time, so quite regularly. But in terms of what I'm trying to do with either of those groups is they're going to have to make a lifestyle change. If, it, if it's in elite sport, it's going to be a lifestyle change around their training, their nutrition and everything else. And if it's your average person that comes along to a PT twice a week, they've still got to make a lifestyle change in terms of their nutrition, their levels of activity and what have you. From counselling, we know that the most effective counsellors, in other words, the ones that get results, getting people to change, they demonstrate high levels of empathy. And what you see with the type of trainer that's going, just get on with it. What do you know? You're a beast. That means you're just lazy. You're kind of not that bright or whatever. These kind of stereotypical things you hear. What to me that is demonstrating is a complete lack of empathy for the client. And so the first thing every trainer needs is empathy for their client. And, and it's something I teach on the motivational interview all the time is curiosity curiosity about their client why are they in this position why why have they not made a change and that type of thing because you kind of need to understand where your client is and shouting and screaming and just saying 
look at me, how great I am, and surely you would like to look like this or whatever. All you're doing there is building your own ego, and you're certainly not helping your clients. It will work for some clients short term, but if you want a long-term outcome in terms of the client ultimately getting to their ideal weight or getting to a level of fitness where they're happy or whatever it might be, long-term outcomes are going to require a lifestyle change from the client. And the only person that can make that change is the client. No amount of screaming and shouting at a client is going to achieve that. Bill Miller, who's kind of one of the founding fathers of motivational interviewing, one of his favorite sayings is, people don't like to be should on. And what he means by that is, you should do this. You shouldn't be doing that. That type of approach will just put up barriers and actually will will get the reverse effect of what you're trying to achieve. One like I I can hear from working with clients in the gym floor. I can hear other PTs literally saying what you have just said about like oh they don't want it enough. They're they're not motivated. All this kind of stuff. They're lazy. And I can hear that from people that I've had I've worked with and stuff. Yeah. And the other old adage or age old adage is about kind of time management when it comes to kind of weight loss or trying to get fit. And one of the sentences that is kind of mentioned an awful lot is I don't have time. But as you've mentioned, the other word of the key is empathy, that not everyone has the amount of time or has the amount of drive or has the amount of effort or willpower to want to do as much as a PT or a bodybuilder wants to do, because that's a different goal or that's someone may have three kids and may not be sleeping. How do you kind of time management tips for someone that may not have May someone maybe have a busy, busy family or a very high profile job, whatever maybe. Have you got time management tips for some people for that? Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say as a trainer, you, you should see yourself as a guide. You don't want to be a leader. You don't want to be out front going, follow me. This is the way to achieve this result. That That's the wrong style of kind of um, teaching. You each, equally don't want to be a follower. So you don't want to be going, oh, what would you like to do? What do you think the right thing is? You need to come alongside. And part of that coming alongside is getting the client to explore for themselves ideas around this thing about time management. So people say they haven't got time. So often when I start with clients, I will get them to do an activity in a food diary. And so what that does is by getting people to record, and we know that self-monitoring is a really important aspect of a successful weight management program. First thing that will get them to do is start to realize where actually they have got time. It might only be 10 minutes here or five minutes there. And so I work, so you said about like the busy client, I've got a couple of CEOs of companies. They're very successful. They work stupid hours. But when I'm working with them, I get them to look down and and I get them to think about what is really important to them. And in, in a lot of cases for them, their biggest driver is, is money, success, whatever. And that's fair enough. And so then I get them to explore, well, okay, what do you need to be successful? And they'll go, oh, yeah, well, I need this, I need that. And then I start to get them to think about, what about your health? I said, what if you were sick for two days? What impact does that have on your business? Oh, well, it just puts me two days back. I said, so there's two days you've lost already. So I get them to start to think about that. And then I get them to start to think about nutrition in a different way. Because I think 
when they come to me, they expect me to be telling them, oh, you should eat this and you should follow this diet plan and blah, blah, blah. And I never do that. I always work with what they currently do. And then we work on subtle changes as we go along. But whenever I'm talking about changes with them, I never talk about it in terms of, or very rarely do I talk about it in terms of health or weight loss or whatever. I'll talk to it in terms of this is going to make you make better decisions in the morning. This is going to mean you're mentally going to be making good decisions. This is going to mean that you're going to have better energy levels towards the end of the day. So now I'm talking their language. And so now they're willing to investigate finding time for some nutritional, some food prep, meal prep, whatever, because they can now see the value of eating slightly better, eating regularly, whatever it might be. And then in terms of tips, whenever they're prepping food, I always tell them to do twice as much as they actually need and freeze half of it. I said, because now straight away, you've got a ready meal. You can chuck it in the microwave or whatever. If, if the whole world goes wrong on that day and you come in, you're not having to think, oh, I'll just get a pizza or whatever. It's like, I've got a meal in the freezer. I can soon heat that up or whatever. So talk about that. Talk about quick things they can do because very often one of the problems you get is snacking so they're turning to you know they stop in a garage garage forecourt and it's like i'll oh, just grab a mars bar or a snickers or, or bag of crisps or whatever so think about easy snacks think about stuff they can leave in the car that is to hand that type of thing but also talk to them about uh, things that are easy to do. So a real easy snack that takes a couple of minutes to do beans on toast. So some whole grain toast, chuck it in the toaster, three minutes to heat up the beans. You've got a really quite nutritious snack. It's high protein because the beans and the bread will give you all the amino acids you need. And so these little things just, they start to realize. And then with some of them, I've actually gone through some basic cooking skills. So like, how to stir fry something, how to kind of knock up things really quickly. And it's just like real simple things. And in most cases, it's, it's more, it is weight management, it's time management and planning. And what I find with a lot of the clients now is they will plan out their week in terms of meals, snacks, and things like that. And so now they feel more in control of it. And, but they've never thought of doing it that way before. Even when they've gone on, diet plans or they've done weight watches or slimming world or whatever it's always been a case of they've gone gone at it day by day and they've never taken a longer term view and so like with a lot of the business guys that i work with i'll talk to them i say if you had a project would you do that project on day one come in and go oh this is what we're going to do today and then we'll see how it goes and they go well no no we plan long term and we plan kind of specific uh, milestones along the route and I said, well, that is the way to approach your nutrition and your exercise stroke activity. Come up with a long-term plan for it. So for this week, you're going to do this. For the next week, you'll do that. And then we sit down together and I, I pick their brains as much as I can in terms of what ideas have you got for snacks? Because very often people actually know what they should do. It's just that they don't really think it through. And the fact that I'm getting them to give me the information means they've got ownership of it. And so therefore they are more likely to follow through with it. Now, if they come up with ideas that I'm thinking that is not a great plan rather than 
shoot it down which is the temptation again this is what you often see with an expert is oh no you don't want to be doing that what you really should be doing is this i would say to them because i'm going to be motivationally interviewing consistent with them i would go i've got some concerns about that would you be interested in hearing what they are now i've never had a client go no i'm not interested i'm just doing it but by doing it in that way i've asked their permission to flag what i think could be an issue and then I'll talk them through it. I'll say, well, some clients have found this and some of my other clients have found that when they do this, this happens. How does that sound to you? And they'll often say, oh, yeah, I can see the sense of that. Maybe I should do A, B, C, D. And so now this, I've, I've kind of got them back on track, but actually they've kind of feel like they've done it for themselves. And so it's always being aware of respect my client's autonomy, their right to choose. And so that's where your skill as a trainer comes in. It's being able to approach things that you can see are going to be detrimental in the correct way and offer maybe some solutions with the client's permission. But it's very much working with what the client's knowledge is already and then just making them feel like, actually, I'm kind of driving this boat, as it were. So, yeah. Why do you think that a lot of clients when you say like a oh, plan out your week so like most people would have right they've got their kids schedules they've got their like oh i'm doing the school run this day or this kids are playing football or whatever maybe i've got all my meetings i know exactly what's going on but when it comes to their own nutrition or their own training it's kind of like put on the back burner because everything else is for right how how do you work with clients around that that that's where i say that's where you've got to highlight why nutrition is important what the, okay. what the benefits of doing that are going to be because i think in a lot of cases what trainers nutritionists will tend to do is just say oh do this because it's got a health benefit or do this because that will help you lose weight but you're you're not really kind of for want of a better word you're not really selling it selling them any benefit yeah and what you might perceive as a benefit as a trainer so you might your values and beliefs may be around being fit being healthy, how I look, that type of thing. Your clients' values and beliefs can be very different. They're, they might be family. They could be their business. They could be income. And so it's a case of getting them to understand that the reason they're going to make some of these nutritional changes is it will benefit their family. It will benefit their income. It will benefit their productivity. So now they're tying good nutritional habits to things that are of value to them as opposed to I'm just doing it because I want to lose weight or whatever. So it's kind of getting, it's making sure that it matches their values and beliefs. Why do you think so many people struggle with when they're kind of looking for their actual why and their intrinsic motivation side of things? Why do you think so many people are afraid to dig down into actual why they actually want to do something? Because there's the whole five whys from the likes of Simon Sinek and stuff like that. Yeah. And a lot of people, when they get to like the third or fourth why, they're kind of like, this is getting uncomfortable. I don't really like where this is going. Why do you think so many people really struggle with that side of things? Because I don't think we train trainers sufficiently in, in counselling skills because it's very much, personal training is very much counselling. Yeah. Having been a trainer for as many years as I had, the one thing you, you realise fairly early on is, yes, I'm prescribing exercise and yes, I'm talking about nutrition, but actually, I'm dealing with all their other problems as well. They'll tell you everything. And this is why I, I, I've now done a course in counselling. 
I'm currently doing a diploma in cognitive behavioral therapy because I've come to the realization that these are all the actual skills you really need as a trainer. And without those skills, actually your exercise knowledge and your nutrition knowledge ain't a lot of help because it's going in one ear and out the other. And so you kind of need to be comfortable with the counseling skills and confronting where these problems, because a lot of food choices, a lot of nutrition choices are behaviorally based. They've got kind of roots in their past early early life experience or whatever it might be a lot of people use food for comfort for solace for enjoyment i mean food is a whole bunch of other stuff other than and it always makes me laugh when you see trainers going you've just got to think that it's food is fuel it's like that's about the last thing anybody thinks of food as yeah unless possibly they're an athlete and maybe in elite sport there is that time but certainly with your average client talking about food is fuel is like meaningless because it, it's a whole bunch of other stuff. And so you kind of have to explore that. And certainly when you work using counseling skills and you keep digging, you kind of peel away the layers, you do get to a place where it becomes quite raw and you'll get tears and God knows what, but actually to some degree you need that because it's the client discovering why they do things that they do and why they don't do things as well yeah it's funny when it's kind of like an onion you kind of peel it back and peel it back and you get to the actual uh the actual core of it and i think for i think it's very rewarding for the client when they do get to that they kind of like they never i think when they sign up for with some coaches anyway in relation to kind of going on a weight loss journey they don't expect it to be such a mental tests and a mental journey um rather than just like oh here's a meal plan because that's not going to teach anyone that's a dictatorship that i'm, I'm so anti-meal plan it's uh well, i think i think that's the reason why i lost my hair <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny because i've been a registered nutritionist now for 15 16 years something like i can't remember the exact time but i think in those years i can most put it on two hands actually that's how many diet plans i've written so less than 10. And those 10, I know exactly who they were for. It was when I was working with an MMA fighter who was a European champion. And he used to like the discipline of having a meal plan for making weight. Yeah. And so I would work with him over six months to get him quite near to his fight weight. But for the last couple of weeks where we were just getting rid of the last kilogram or so, he he preferred to have a strict meal plan because at that point he was so blinkers on for the fight that he said it was just easier to have a list to follow with a time to take it. He said he wasn't really thinking about what it was. He was just doing it because I'd said that's the right amount of calories. That's the right way to refuel and what have you. That's the only time I've ever written a meal plan. And people are like, yeah, but you work with elite sport. I was Knott's Forest nutritionist for a year. I was way more about educate the players so as they understand what they're doing so as they can make their own choice. Because meal plan, people will follow meal plans for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, and then it will just go out the window. Yeah. And so what have you achieved? You haven't educated the client. They don't understand why they're eating those foods. And now they're back to square one as well. So it's like, nah, I, no, I'm a big, I'm very anti meal plans. Do you find athletes... Are so say for because I know I've heard a few stories about footballers and stuff. Do you find them a little bit more difficult than 
uh, general population. <laughs> Difficult to polite word, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> there are certain very well-known footballers, because I worked with the Welsh international squad for for about six months when Mark Hughes was the manager. Oh, Sparky, yeah, yeah. And there are some well-known players who we did not get on because they were like, do you know who I am? Oh, okay. And I was like... Yeah, and I'm six foot one and 17 stone, and I don't care who you are. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard a few s- stories about uh, athletes, all right, from uh, the person that taught me my g- the course as well. Um, you talk about the mental side of things. Um, one of the things that's kind of huge for myself, and one of the things I work with an awful lot of my clients is the the element of kind of positive affirmations. Yeah. I think when people start to to do them they they see massive benefit but i think when people hear the idea of it's like i'm going to turn into the buddha if i start writing these down why do you think it's such a powerful tool one and why do you think so many people actually struggle with it some people it comes really naturally and and i think that's very true so like when i'm teaching motivational interviewing some trainers that come on the course they just they'd most probably be doing most of the skills of motivational interviewing. It's just that no one's ever put a a name to it. And so all they really get out of the course is they now understand the structure. Now, a big part of uh, MI is what we call the oars. And so it's the use of open questions, affirmations, reflections, summaries. And so for somebody that it comes naturally to, they'll often spot opportunities to affirm somebody. That's great that you're doing that. I love the way you've gone about that. The thing about affirmations is it builds client engagement. So they kind of feel a bit closer to you. So that kind of helps in terms of a working guiding environment. It also builds this. And remember we were saying about we've got to build intrinsic motivation. Affirmations build capability. Because if they're getting an affirmation, it's great that you've done that. You've managed to follow that for a week. I like the way you did that or whatever. They now feel good about that behavior and think, yeah, that's great. Actually, that is good that I can do that. And they've they've maybe not looked at it that way. And so it's getting them to understand that some of the behaviors they are now doing are really positive and will really benefit them. And because they now understand that, that starts to build their intrinsic motivation. So finding opportunities to offer, if you are going to use affirmations, it must be genuine. You must genuinely mean it. It's no good just thinking, oh, well, I've been working with this client for 10 minutes. I better chuck an affirmation in here somewhere because people will pick up on that 100%. It's just, it's got to come and it kind of ties in with what I was saying about empathy. It has to come from a genuine place. Yeah, and if if you understand this, you you can always spot an opportunity to offer an affirmation, and it and it can start right from the start. Client turns up on time for a session. Great, thanks for turning up today. It's so great that your timekeeping's that good. It really makes my life a lot easier. You're starting off on the right foot. They're already thinking, oh, it's great that you noticed that that I bothered to turn up on time or whatever. So it. As long as it's coming from a genuine place, it will build that kind of relationship with the client. And and that's so important because the initial stage, motivational interviewing, how you're going to get people to maybe make a shift is what we call engaging. And it's kind of getting on board with the client, making sure you've got some type of rapport. And get buy-in from what actually the approach that you're taking with yeah, them, yeah. understanding why they're trying to do something. I think that's huge as well. I think 
the other thing that you're huge on is in relation to kind of the goal is the outcome but then actually the system that gets you to your goal and i think a lot of people are like oh this is the goal they see it as a target all the way down there but they don't necessarily see the path to how to get there can you expand on that kind of statement that you've kind of mentioned there about the goal is just an outcome system that gets you to the goal yeah so there's kind of two ways you can look at it. You can look at the goal as an outcome. In other words, oh, in six months' time, I'm going to be fit and I'll be able to run a marathon. Or you can look at it from an individual perspective in terms of I am now a marathon runner. And you can be a marathon runner from day one because you, if you identify as that, you are likely to spot opportunities to reinforce that view. So rather than... Um, I'm, tr- you know, somebody offers you, I don't know, fast food or something like that, or let's go out for a pizza rather than, Oh no, I'm trying to eat healthily. You always go, I'm a healthy eater. And I think I'd rather not actually, you're now identifying with that role because that's the role you really want to be in for the rest of your life, because it, you shouldn't be viewing this as let's just get to the finish line and then we're done kind of thing. So And part of goal setting, and and it's a bit that people maybe often overlook, you want that long-term goal, but you also want the short-term goals, literally weekly goals. And there's, there's two reasons for that. If you're doing it weekly, you are now putting a system in place that is ultimately going to get you to where you want to go. You can think of it as you've got a ladder up to the roof of your house. If there's not many rungs in that ladder, it's going to be a real nightmare to try and climb up it and get to the roof. And the odds are you won't make it to the roof. Whereas if the ladder has got lots of little rungs, it's pretty straightforward to walk up that ladder. And so that's where goals are. The the weekly goal is the small rung in the ladder. And the other reason that you have the goals like that, the weekly goals is that is going to build the client's capability. Because now each week when they achieve that one little target, whether it be I'm going to do three walks this week in my own time, I'm going to go out and do a 20 minute walk. And that's all it need be as well. The following week, when they come back and they look at their record and they go, actually, I managed to do four. They've achieved the goal. So that in itself is good. But the thing is, it's now built their capability. And so they now feel like, oh, I can do that. And if we're building capability, we're building intrinsic motivation. And so now we're slowly getting a system in place and it's a system that will get you to the goal, not the goal itself. And so that that's why you kind of look, need to look at it differently. You mentioned there about the ladder. And one of the analogies that I like to use is having the the right ladder against the right wall. Because I think when people are think that they want to lose weight, but when it gets to the nitty gritty of it, they don't really want to lose weight. They want to feel more comfortable. They want to have like a better sex life. They want to have more energy for their kids. And that's why it's so, so important to like properly dig down and get to that internal why. You really should explore that long-term goal. And one of what you should do with a client is what we call uh, emotional anchoring. And what that basically is, is what you've just said, really. Okay. If you achieve that goal, if you get to that weight, if you get to that level of fitness, What is that going to give you? What is that going to mean to you? How's that going to feel? And often people can't quite visit. They've got that goal and they can go, oh, yeah, I want to lose a stone. But when you say to them, well, okay, let's envisage in six months time you've lost a stone. 
what's that going to give you? And sometimes they really struggle. It's like, yeah. well, I'll just be a stone lighter. I was like, yep, okay, you'll be a stone lighter. And now is when you keep digging. It's like that. That's like that sentence. I'll be happy when when I'm a stone down. And it's like, but that's not a, like you can't predict the future. You can't predict a lot of numbers. You so don't you, know that. Yeah, and I think if they pick a number out of their heads. It's it's it, most of the time it's a number on a scales, and they pick out their heads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's a number that they've potentially been that way twenty years ago before kids, and it's like something unrealistic. And you're like, well, do you want to give up ninety percent of your life for ten percent body fat, or do you actually want to be able to find an approach that you can? enjoy and be present with your family and your kids yeah it's actually a little bit more important you talk about kind of like the self-talk and that is creating your reality you talked about identity there a moment ago and that's something that we work an awful lot with our clients on is the identity and their language around food and themselves is this probably the most difficult part to internally dialogue and change internally for yourself in relation to how you actually one view food because the good v bad food yeah. thing kind of comes up and before anyone jumps on that there's no such thing uh, <laughs> yeah. I have to say there's every something episode. else I hate it's like I'm definitely <laughs> a grumpy old man it's like don't like that don't like that I'm okay with being grumpy it's all good <laughs> um, but it's so so important like that the language changes but how like the narrative that people create like where where does it ultimately come from is it from trauma is it coming from the likes of the backgrounds that they've had the, the parents all that kind of stuff like how can you can you how difficult is it to actually pinpoint where it's kind of rooted from it's it's subconscious and it's unconscious and it's their true beliefs your self-talk is a reflection of what you truly believe and that's why it's so important that you kind of get a handle on it because if somebody is saying it's difficult to lose weight or i find it difficult to lose weight well, then that's going to be true. Story, you will yeah. find it difficult to lose weight because that's your self-talk. That's what your belief is. And what that will do is you will find every opportunity to reinforce it. So if there was two articles in a magazine and one said weight management isn't that difficult providing you do A, B, C, D, and the other article says weight management is difficult because it's down to poor genetics and what have you, you will pay massive attention to the one that supports your belief about weight management being difficult. And you will totally discount the one that counters your belief. And so when clients say that type of thing, I always say to them, we're going to put that in the dock. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, I want you to imagine you're in court. I said, so now when you say to yourself, oh, it's going to be difficult for me to lose weight or it will be difficult for me to eat healthily today. I say, I want to imagine, I want you to imagine you're the prosecuting barrister. And so you're going to make that statement. And now you're going to say, right, madam, where's your evidence for that? How, show me how you can support that. And initially people will say, oh yeah, but there's this and this. And I say, and now you start, now you need to become the annoying child. Why is that? What, why is that true? What, how can you support that? And again, it's that kind of peeling away the layers But every time you say something, if you kind of then question, is that true? Why is that true? Where have I got any evidence to support that? If you get into the habit of doing that, slowly you can can police that self-talk basically out the door because it's like you've, you've got to confront it, though. You can't just accept it. And we all do it. I mean, the classic one being 
you're coming from a long day at work. So I see this with CEOs. They do a long day at work. They'll come in, plonk themselves in front of the telly, and then where I've said to them, or we've agreed that they're going to do a 10, 15-minute, 20-minute walk every evening, and they'll say to themselves, oh, yeah, but I've had a really long day at work, and actually I'd be better off if I just rested now and watched the telly. And I'll say to them, ask yourself, is that true? Where is your evidence that after your long day at work, watching television for two hours is going to be benefit beneficial to you? And they really struggle with finding evidence. And so basically what they do is because they can't find any evidence to support their statement, they just think, sod it, I'll go and do the walk because it's just easier. It's almost like it gets them out of policing that and they just go and do it. And so just getting into the habit of doing it, listening to the voices. So one of the things that I struggle with and will always struggle with in terms of motivational interviewing and most experts in the field struggle with it even though they've got maybe 10 years experience is your writing reflex that that voice in your head that somebody says something and you go no that's not right and it's so tempting to go no no that's wrong what you should be doing is duh, duh, duh. and so i have to police myself talk and it's like I can hear someone saying something, and, I, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking, no, you mustn't use your writing reflex this time. And I actually kind of mentally say it to myself, shut up and let them carry on. And my other one is talk a lot, real temptation to keep talking. And so, again, I police myself talk, and I say to myself, you're talking too much, shut up. And and now I do that all the time, and, and I most probably will always have to do that. But it's just be having an awareness that you've got these voices based on real deep-seated beliefs and being strong enough to go, is that really true? Should I really do that? And getting clients into that habit is, is quite interesting because you can see it dawning on them over a number of weeks that when they start to kind of really question things they say around fitness, health, eating, nutrition, whatever it might be, a lot of it isn't based on any fact. It's just things they, they will say and because nobody's ever challenged it, they think, well, it must be true then. Yeah, it's, we kind of use uh, like the fact for the opinion. Like, have you created that story yourself or is it like set in stone? The only thing that's really a fact about yourself is your name and your age, really. Yeah. And then everything else is like something that's been said to you and then you've decided to latch onto it. So say if I called you a purple monkey dishwasher, you wouldn't react. But if someone said something like, oh, you're bold, or you're fat or whatever it may be, we will latch onto that story and then we'll latch onto that as our identity. There's so many different things that kind of come at us and we latch onto these little things as, as, as we go. And one of the things that kind of a lot of people latch onto is the ide- ideal uh, of kind of, or the idea of perfection. And how do you, how do you kind of move or kind of, kind of push people towards moving away from perfection and kind of actually moving towards production? Because we live in an information overload world at the minute yeah. we're on a running on adrenaline we're trying to be looking like something to someone else all the time but how can you kind of move someone from perfection towards actually production i always think that you should look at as perfection as just another technique to procrastinate it's just like it's a real good reason not to do something because it's not perfect and so it's a form of procrastination there's no two ways about it the other thing is we've all got our own standards. And so our idea of perfection 
is most probably unrealistic. And we kind of think, oh, I can't put that out there or I can't do that because I'll get criticised for it or whatever. And actually what happens is when you do put it out there, nobody blooming notices. And so I always say to people, get as much done as you can and put it out there. And if you get a bit of criticism, really, is it going to kill you? You might learn from it and it might help you perfect it a bit anyway. The odds are, though, that you put it out there, nobody notices. And in fact, most people go, oh, that was really good. I really enjoyed that. So it's just our own ideals. And far better to just produce something. You will feel far better about it. It's a bit like, oh, I don't know if I can run 10K tonight or whatever, because I'm, I'm not that good a runner. And, and the classic one, oh, I'm going to join the gym when I get fit. It's like, hang on, you join the gym to get fit, surely. Oh, no, but everybody in the gym's fit. So so that, that's a degree of perfectionism, feeling that I can't do it until I'm at this level. In actual fact, it doesn't really matter what level you're at. If you start doing it, you will eventually attain whatever level you want to do. But the key thing is you've got to start. And the problem with perfectionism is you never start. Yeah. Um, once you do something, once you put a foot in the sand, it's like, oh, actually, that wasn't so bad. Maybe I'll take another step now. And it's only until you start putting your feet in the sand that you realize that actually walking is not that difficult. And it's kind of a, it's similar with anything we do. Do the best you can, but get it out there. Don't think, oh, I won't do it until I've got it spot on, because that way you will never do anything. Yeah, I think what happens to a lot of people when they try to be perfect, as you said, they procrastinate and never actually action anything that they want to do. And then the guilt comes in because they haven't met their expectations that they set in the first place. Yeah. This vicious circle of kind of going around and around and never actually achieving something that they want to do. As you said, the biggest sentence is, and it, it, some people are like, oh, it's very broke. But like, if you start doing something, towards what you want to do it's 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 going to be it's going to revolutionize what you're going to feel better about it yeah definitely i said to the trainers in my research i said i want you to try and get your clients although the outcome measure is going to be reduction in waste measure and reduction in weight that was the ultimate outcome measure from the research i said to them i want you to stress throughout health benefits so if your client is now able to walk around the block in five minutes, whereas when they started, it took 10 minutes. That's a health benefit. Yeah. They are now that bit fitter. They're not even ready to run around the block, but if we wait for the point where they're ready to run around the block, they'll never even start walking. Now they're starting to walk around the block and they're seeing the benefits. And so when they see those small benefits, they think, well, if I carry on, then I'll get a few more of those benefits. And so that's kind of a, a key thing for, I think for a lot of trainers is we stress so much or clients stress so much about oh, I need to be this way, I need to be this. And actually, we should look at maybe some of the health benefits. And it's kind of the same with healthy eating. Yeah, yeah you could have the perfect diet that matches every dietary guideline there is. I doubt there are many people that actually manage that. But if you come to your trainer and six days a week at the moment, you're eating pizza and chips, fish and chips and takeaways, if in two weeks' time, you're having two less pizza and chips, chip, fish and chips, whatever it is, your diet is already better. It's not perfect, but it's better. And now you've got something to build on. So it's like, make that little tweak. It's not perfect, but it's a tweak. And now you can build on those. And maybe in six months time, 
you'll be eating healthily five days of the week. And a couple of takeaways, you're still in a better place. So it's just change, change where your focus is going, really, I think. You mentioned about the kind of the, the health markers and the measurements and all that kind of stuff rather than the scales. Like we use a kind of non-scale victories and bring those up on how people are actually feeling. Have you had like a date night with your family or kids? Have you brought your kids? Have you played football with your kids or whatever? Be? Yeah, I and love focus, that. And focus on that. Yeah. Because then that takes the pressure away from the check-in. It takes the pressure away. And then there's a check-in sheet box that says, what three wins did you have this week? And celebrate those. And when you mentioned the takeaway thing, people are like, when you when they go on a diet, you can't have a takeaway. Takeaway can be something that you enjoy and bring in yeah. and make it like a date night. Make it a, yeah. a social occasion. Put the phones away and just be present with your family, especially yeah. what's going on now. If you haven't seen your family in ages or your family are like at each other's heads, this could be like the half an hour of just kind of like chill, have a movie night or whatever it may be uh, and make it work for yourself. The and- and I think you brought up a good point there about mental fitness and mental health. The one thing the pandemic has kind of shown us is mental health is just as important almost as physical health. Yeah. And maybe we should pay more attention to that because I don't think we have up until this point, really. No, I think a lot of people have rammed down a lot of stuff and it's kind of coming out now because they've had a little bit more time to think about it, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, it's kind of, it's going to be scary to kind of see what happens over the next few years with, with, with the repercussions of what's happening. Um, the the last question I have for you, Gary, is in relation to habits. And I think a lot of people have read the likes of Atomic Habits by James Clear, and that's kind of yep. one of the big books that a lot of people have read about. Can habits actually be changed or does it come down to replacing them or the, the phrasing that uh, James Clear uses is habit stacking? Yeah, they, you can't get, I think a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm, I'm going to change it. You can't, you can overwrite a habit, but you're always going to have that habit. It is always there. That's why you, you see people that, um, and my wife's a really good example of this. She stopped smoking for 10 years. So you would think that's that habit dead in the water, 10 years. And then one day, for whatever reason, she went out with mates or whatever, they offered her a fag, she had it, and she was back smoking. And what that clearly demonstrates is that habit was always there. It's just that she'd overwritten it with a new system, if you want. You can think of habits as the software on your computer. And so at the moment, you're running a version of Windows or whatever it might be, and then they will bring out a new version. They don't rub off the old version off your PC. All they do is they write over the top the new version of Windows. And if a problem comes up with it two, three weeks down the line, they will tell you how you can revert to the previous program. And that's what habits are. They are there. It's just that you overwrite a new version. And so understanding how a habit is formed is important for you as the trainer, and it's important for the client to identify And so there are three kind of key things in a habit. The first thing is a cue or a trigger, something that makes you do this. Then you have the routine itself, whatever that might be. So if we were, if we were talking about smoking, it could be the cue is you smell cigarette smoke. The routine would be you reach for a cigarette, you light it up. You then have a reward. And the reward might be you feel part of the group, you feel relaxed, whatever it might be. But they're the three things you've got to understand. Cue, routine, trigger. 
as a trainer, you've got to decide which bit of that habit is most amenable to change. Sometimes it will be the cue. So let's just say uh, client coming in, we'll go back with the client that I said, when they get in the door, they have to go for a walk. For them, their, their old cue was they would come through the door, they would make a cup of coffee and have a couple of chocolate biscuits with it. That was their route every night they would come in. So the cue for them was finishing work, coming through the door. The routine was make a coffee, have a couple of biscuits. And the reward was they felt relaxed. They felt they'd kind of finished their work for the day. And so we kind of had to come up with, with something new. So the cue was always going to be come through the door. But what we agreed on was the routine would now be the 20-minute walk. Now, in terms of the reward, we used actually his goal setting as the reward because we had emotionally anchored the goal. And I said to him, whenever you're kind of tempted to, like, not do your 20-minute routine, just think to yourself, is this moving me to my goal or away from it? And clearly, if, if you did the routine, you did the 20-minute walk, it would be rewarding because you could now think to yourself, oh, I did the routine. That's great. That's moved me one step nearer to achieving my goal of being able to do da, 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 whatever it is. And so it's identified those three elements and think which ones are meanable. So in nutrition, sometimes the cue will be you've got stuff in the cupboard. You open the cupboard and you see a bag of crisps. That's the cue. So, well, okay, we can remove that cue then. We can put something else there. So it's a case of identify what it is. And sometimes that's a really useful exercise to do with clients. Why do you do that? Oh, well, it seems that every time I do this, I do this. And so they're starting to piece what the habit is. And so now you can work on, well, how can we swap that about then? I think what you said there about, say, the cup of tea, the cup of coffee in the evening with the bars or something, I think a lot of that, I can I can hear a lot of my clients have said it in the last little while. A lot of my clients will be listening to this and kind of saying, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Settling, settling down for the evening because my parents used to do it. And yeah. it's kind of like, that was the chill time. And that might be the reason you do it, because yeah. your parents did it, and so you've always done it. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of a lot of us do do things that our parents have taught us, and I think that has to be brought into it as well. It's like, well, do you want your kids to do this habit or whatever well, the, it is? Well, the classic one, the very old-fashioned one, you don't see it as much, but people from a nutritional perspective is clear your plate. Yeah. Why do you clear your plate? Oh, well, because my parents said, if I clear my plate, I can have dessert. And yeah. they'd never thought about before, oh, that's the reason I always want to clear my plate. And so one of the things I'll, I'll get clients to do is I'll say, right, as an exercise tonight, what I want you to do is I want you to leave something on your plate. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And when it comes to doing it, they go, that was so difficult. I felt so bad about leaving something on my plate. And I said, that just demonstrates that for you is a habit. I put a meal in front of you. There's your trigger. The routine is eat the meal and clear the plate. And the reward is you now feel good about it or I can have a dessert because I cleared the plate. Yeah. And yeah. nowhere in there have we talked about hunger. Yeah. So have I cleared the plate because I was hungry or have I cleared the plate because it was put in front of me? And am I having dessert because I cleared the plate or am I having dessert because I'm hungry? And it's like learning to understand hunger again is part of changing a habit actually. Because for a lot of us, we eat for enjoyment and everything else. And it's very little to do with hunger. 
Yeah, like it's funny because like, I literally got a message from one of my clients this morning. Something we're working on is like the the hunger cues. Um, and actually, are you hungry? Sitting there with your emotion and actually being there with your feelings. And one of the things we tweaked is to so say she had a pasta bake for the family, and she was like, "Oh, I'd normally have this size portion, but I'm going to shorten the portion. And if I still want it afterwards, I will go and have it." I love ha- that. Had her meal. I was like, no. And she sent me a picture this morning of that what was left. And I was like, there's still a decent chunk of food still left in the pot. I was yeah. like, there's your lunch today. Um, but I think a lot of people are like afraid to be kind of looking at that internal driver and get digging down a little bit more. But I think once you can get a little bit uncomfortable to get comfortable, I think it's... It, it, yeah, it's, 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 it's almost changes. like you need that bit of discomfort to get to a better place. Yeah, it's like it's like building a muscle. It has to put a stressor on. It has to get uncomfortable to properly build a muscle. It's the exact same yeah. thing with the brain. Yeah. Um, but Gary, I can't thank you enough. I've learned so much, and I hope the, the listeners have as well. Where can people work with yourself? Where can people sign up for your courses? Uh, they can go to my website, which is www.stagesofchange.co.uk. Uh, my Instagram is Dr. Gary Mendoza, or one word. And my Twitter is Dr. Gary Mend, M-E-N-D. So again, all one word. And I post regularly on there. You can book my course. All courses are online, taught by me, or they're e-learning, one or the other. And they can be booked on my website. And my Behaviour Change Workshop is actually AFN accredited. So it's externally accredited by the Association for Nutrition. Amazing. Like, uh, guys, if you are a PT or anyone like that, I would highly encourage checking out Gary's uh, information and listen to all the podcasts and stuff that he's been on, checking out his courses. Gary, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. Great. Thanks for inviting us on, Shane. Really appreciate that. If you've enjoyed the episode at all, guys, please do tag Gary and I up on your story and leave a review up on iTunes. Like, if you are a PT, I would highly re- recommend kind of listen back to the episode again. It's it's, it's really, really is useful. The stuff about motivation, the time management tips, the positive affirmations, goal setting, and kind of helping clients and better understanding clients. Like Gary is one of the biggest leaders in the industry for that side of stuff and created the motivational interviewing things that so many nutritionists and so many people use these days. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode with uh, with Gary.